0: Chapter 13 of The Romance of Excavation by David Masters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Stephen Seidel. Chapter 13 tells how Heinrich Schliemann found Troy and of his amazing life. The grocer's boy, who wept over Homer, starved himself to buy books and eventually made a fortune to carry on his boyish dream of finding the city of which Homer sang. At first, the scientists laughed at him, until the astounding treasures of Troy and the wealth of Mycenae came to light. As romantic as are the Egyptian discoveries, as amazing as the work of layered remains, the discovery of Troy ranks as the most amazing and romantic of all. The excavation of Troy is, indeed, an epic, Interwoven with boyish dreams, the pictures in a book, dire poverty, and a gallant struggle for fortune. While Layard's life work was largely inspired by the tales of the Arabian Nights, Heinrich Schliemann, who excavated Troy, found his inspiration in Homer. When the pastor of the hamlet of New Buckau in Mecklenburg Schwerin gazed for the first time on his newborn son in 1822, He little knew what strange experiences confronted the boy. A year or two passed, and the boy grew to love the stories of the Greek heroes of old that his father used to pour into his eager ear. Heinrich Schliemann was enraptured, transported with delight. To him, the stories were real. The deeds which Homer sang were true. The gift of a book showing the burning of Troy set all doubts at rest in the boy's mind. He saw Troy itself being devoured by flames, the people fleeing for their lives. "'I'm going to find Troy,' he said to his little playfellows. They laughed at him, and he drew aside, rather hurt, unable to understand why they did not share his enthusiasm. Then a little girl joined him, listened to his tales of Troy, and of how he was going to set out one day to find it. "'I'll help you,' she said. The little boy remembered— years afterwards he returned to her but she had forgotten and married another desolation came on the home and the boy was driven to face life in a grocer's shop for eighteen hours a day he expended his boyish strength in the services of the grocer sweeping out the shop cleaning the windows doing menial tasks for which he had not the slightest inclination while customers were demanding salt herrings of him at the counter he was dreaming of helen of troy as he patted the butter his thoughts followed the adventures of ulysses he saw him sailing twixt scylla and Charybdis, heard the sirens calling to his hero it was a desperately hard life for the boy his spirit rebelled but he could do nothing to escape He was the creature of circumstance, a grocer's boy who dreamed of Homer while serving a liter of milk. Continual contact with customers who were rough, crude, uneducated, gradually drove from his mind the little Latin and learning of earlier days. Loving knowledge, he yet had no time to acquire it. What opportunity was there for a boy to learn while working eighteen hours a day? Schliemann was one of the shop-slaves of the last century. His life was sheer drudgery all the time. Just drudgery and a few hours of sleep for the exhausted frame. No pleasure, no holidays, only work. Through all this misery sometimes flashed the memories of the happy days when his father used to delight him with the tales of Greek heroes. Somehow, in spite of everything, he retained a glimmer of hope, although he could see no way out of his environment. From dawn to long after dark he was selling food for the body and craving food for the mind. That childish picture of the burning of Troy was as a beacon to him, often nearly overwhelmed, but always flickering up again in his imagination. Buried deep down in him was still the determination to find Troy. It was growing dusk one day when a drunken miller lurched into the shop, and suddenly began to recite in Greek some passages from Homer. Schliemann was transfixed with amazement. The meaning of the words was lost to him, but the beauty of the lines, their music, entered his soul. Say it again, he said eagerly to the miller. The miller repeated the passages, and Schliemann, feeling in his pocket for coppers, bought a glass of spirits to reward the drunkard. Again, said schliemann and gave the man another glass of spirits to induce him to repeat the lines even then the grocer's boy was not satisfied he fumbled in his pocket and produced his last coppers the only wealth he owned in the world and with them he bought a third glass of spirits so that he might hear the lines from homer once more imagine the tragedy of it a grocer's boy giving everything he possessed just to hear a drunken miller, also the son of a clergyman, recite Homer to him in Greek. One clergyman's son, a grocer, weeping because he loved Homer and could not speak Greek. The other a clergyman's son, drinking to drown his misery because he knew Greek and Homer and was condemned to be a miller. Bitter tears flowed down the boy's face. He hungered for learning, but his intellect was starved. Every night, utterly wearied with the day's work he went down on his knees beside his bed and prayed to god that he might live to learn greek to the poor grocer's boy life could hold no greater boon what at the time seemed his crowning misfortune proved in the end to be his way of escape straining one day to lift a big cask a sharp fit of coughing brought his exertions to a sudden end There was blood on his lips and despair in his heart. Work in the shop was no longer possible. The lad knew not what to do. Ill, without money, he drifted to Hamburg. No one would employ him in his weak state, and at last, in desperation, he shipped as a cabin boy in a vessel bound for Venezuela. A storm brought the ship to disaster, and for hours the crew faced death in an open boat Before being cast on the Dutch coast. The darkest days in Schliemann's life followed, days when he was compelled to beg to keep body and soul together. A poorly paid situation in an office revived hope in the breast of the shipwrecked lad. Renting a garret at 18 pence a week, he nearly starved himself in order to buy books for study. Less than a shilling a day sufficed to pay his rent and keep him alive. No longer could his hunger for education be denied. Always he had a book with him. Every minute found him studying. If he waited in a shop, out would come his book from this pocket. Had he to walk an errand down the street, then he walked with an open book in his hand. In six months he learned English. During the next six months he mastered French. He was mad to learn. His whole soul craved for knowledge. All the unknown powers of his undeveloped brain began to awaken. He possessed a genius for learning languages, which was almost unparalleled. With every language he learned, next came easier. In the following six months, he mastered Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, and Italian. His memory, which previously was bad, became remarkably retentive, as is proved by this wonderful feat. He did not stop to rest. His thoughts turned to Russian, and his method of learning that was not without a touch of humor. A better-paid post provided money to pay a teacher, so he scoured the city on his quest. He hunted here, there, and everywhere. In all, Amsterdam was not a single teacher of Russian, not a soul who understood a word of the language. Schliemann, thrown back on himself, unearthed an old Russian grammar and dictionary and began to study the language alone in less than a week he learned the alphabet and soon he was writing simple exercises in russian somehow his progress did not please him he felt the monotony of working alone to lessen this monotony he hit upon the plan of hiring someone to listen to his russian recitations for the sum of sixpence a night every evening he declaimed in russian to the listener the listener understanding not a word sat and was shouted at by schliemann as the listener was paid to listen he could not object it was otherwise however with schliemann's landlords they were not paid to listen and they objected strongly to the noise their lodger made so strongly that he was asked to find other lodgings because of the annoyance he created if the landlords thought to stop his studies this way they were mistaken twice schliemann was driven to new lodgings But he calmly continued his studies, and in six weeks was writing letters in Russian. By the time he was twenty-four, this amazing young man was sent on business to Russia, and within a year he was starting in business there for himself, fully determined to make a fortune so that he could travel and realize the dreams of his childhood. The remarkable thing is that the man who revered Greece and everything Greek, should spend his energies in learning so many other tongues to the exclusion of the language of his beloved homer the truth is that he who had the gift of languages was afraid to learn greek he dared not trust himself to begin the desire implanted by the befuddled miller had grown stronger with the years and schliemann knowing the potent spell the language cast over him feared that once he began to study greek He would neglect his business altogether, and never make the fortune which was to set him free to wander in the land of Homer. He threw himself into his business, just as he had thrown himself into his studies, and for years all his energies were concentrated to one end, that of making money. Once, when Memo was burned down, he gave himself up as ruined. His fortune was locked up in a cargo of indigo at the docks, and all the dock warehouses were a smoking mass. Hours later, he learned that, as the stone warehouses were all choked so full of goods, his indigo had been stored in a wooden shed some distance away, and the direction of the wind had saved the shed. It was an ill wind for Memo, but it troubled Schliemann's fortune. In ten short years, his industry and exceptional ability, coupled with the Crimean War, brought him the fortune he had planned he a young man of thirty-five was free to order his life as he chose he gave himself up wholeheartedly to learning the tongue of his greek heroes and in six weeks greek was no longer an unknown language to him within three months he was reading his beloved homer in the original tongue schliemann who had the phenomenal ability to learn a language in six weeks wandered far over the world, acquiring languages as souvenirs of the lands he visited, just as modern travelers pick up souvenirs in shops. But in the end, his travels brought him to Greece. Where other people regarded the songs of Homer as mere legends, Schliemann never doubted their basic truth. While many wondered whether Troy ever existed at all, Schliemann, in his innermost heart, knew that Troy had been a real city, the wonderful work of Laird fired his imagination, and gradually the idea formed in his mind that if Layard had succeeded in digging up the lost city of Nineveh, he himself might find Troy with a spade. In 1870, filled with the knowledge of years of study, he came to the desolate hill of Hisarlik, standing on the plain of Troy, a short distance from the Dardanelles. He climbed the hill, feeling sure that beneath his feet were buried the remains of the city of his heroes. Scholars laughed at his enthusiasm, ridiculed the idea that Hisarlik could possibly have been Troy. If Troy ever existed, the one thing certain, they averred, was that it could not possibly have been at Hisarlik. To most people, Troy was merely a myth, a city of the gods created by Homer himself countering the ridicule with cold logic schliemann decided to set all doubts at rest by the test of excavation for three hundred pounds he bought the greater part of the site from the turkish owners and after many vexatious delays began digging into the side of the mighty hill in eighteen seventy one he was desperately keen to clear up the mystery of troy he set his laborers to work cutting the secret out of the heart of the hill Men, at Schliemann's bidding, began to run away with the hill of Hisarlik in wheelbarrows. Schliemann's energy was remarkable, his driving force irresistible. From dawn till dark, he was on the site. His wife, a Greek lady, was as enthusiastic as her husband. So enthusiastic, indeed, that she and her maid took picks and spades and dug trenches and made discoveries for themselves. So long as Schliemann was eating into the hill, he was happy. His greatest enemies were feast days and rainy days, for in wet weather it was impossible to work, and on feast days the Greeks positively refused to work. A cartload of money would not win a day's labor from them. So on these days Schliemann sat down and wrote up his discoveries. He laid bare great walls, and as his diggers burrowed into the hill, they found others immediately below the first, the lower walls buried in soil and rubbish. Schliemann was amazed. The hill of Hisarlik was the most wonderful hill in the world. All the history of thousands of years was concentrated on this one spot, heaped up there by the hands of men long dead. The deeper he dug, the more he marveled. Here was city heaped on city civilization on civilization the city of one people had been overwhelmed and covered with debris then on top of the buried city another people had erected their own dwellings probably not knowing nor caring what lay under their feet so it went on here for centuries for thousands of years back into the past to the greeks to the trojans to an earlier race linked with crete the original hill increased in size with the centuries as the cities were overwhelmed so the hill grew until in places it was fifty feet higher than the virgin soil on which the first dwellings were founded as the height increased so did the length and breadth foot by foot the debris of vanished peoples accumulated on the hill foot by foot the rubbish fell until in one direction Schliemann found the hill 250 feet longer than it had originally been, while in another place he found that 150 feet had been added. And in all this mountain of debris, Schliemann came across relics, hundreds of them, thousands of them, walls and pieces of pottery and stone battle-axes with copper nails used by the ladies as hairpins. His industry was astounding. He marked the depth at which everything was found, paid rewards to the finders if a piece of pottery with an inscription turned up the man who turned it up received additional pay the diggers anxious to make all they could were more interested in the money than in the work some tried to deceive him by scratching inscriptions on bits of pottery a magnifying glass soon laid the frauds bare and the finders instead of getting extra pay were fined for their deceit The old diggers soon realized that it was useless to attempt to deceive Schliemann in this way, and the new diggers were not long in learning the same lesson. The hill was like an anthill, men scurrying about with wheelbarrows, men digging away. At times Schliemann had one hundred and fifty laborers at work with horses and carts. Once his men were striving to lever down a mighty wall of earth which long resisted their utmost efforts. No sooner was it down than another wall collapsed without warning on some of the diggers. Schliemann saw the catastrophe with horror. He rushed down and began to dig with all his strength, while the cries and groans of the buried men fell on his ears. Fortunately, the timbers showing up the work slipped in such a way that they kept the weight off the imprisoned men, who were eventually dug out little the worse for their premature burial not without reason did homer call ilium the windy place as schliemann realized when he experienced to the full the awful blasts that swept over the plain sometimes the temperature dropped suddenly and the wind came through their wooden houses and nearly froze them to death the only way it was possible to keep warm on these occasions was to go into a sheltered trench and work at the face of the hill Hundreds of thousands of tons of debris were shifted in driving a great road like a railway cutting with huge sloping embankments through the hill. In one trench, Schliemann fought his way through two walls ten feet thick and in a little while came to two more walls six and eight feet thick. Mighty blocks of stone had to be wrenched out and broken up before they could be carted away. The Greeks, coveting this stone for building purposes, quickly carted it away, but they were too indolent to assist Schliemann in breaking it up. Just as a lady cuts into a cake of many layers, so he cut into the hill of Hisarlick, and instead of finding one city he found seven, built one on top of another, with layers of burned ashes and debris between to mark the calamities which had wiped them out. In some places the ashes were from five to ten feet thick, irrefutable proof of the way fire and sword had played about this desolate hill throughout the ages. He found his city of Troy at a depth of about thirty feet, the city which flourished three thousand years ago, before the Greeks took it by subterfuge. He laid bare the ancient gate, and while cutting a trench through a wall near the gate, his delighted eyes caught their first glimpse of the great Trojan treasure. Golden cups and jugs and silver goblets, some of the gold cups weighing a pound, with silver cups twice as heavy. Here were necklaces and other jewels all hurriedly thrust into a hole in the town wall, as if someone were fleeing with the treasure when he was overwhelmed. Quickly, Schliemann sent his men to breakfast before they knew of the discovery, and very carefully he cut out the treasure from the debris with his knife, giving it to his wife, who, concealing it beneath her cloak, hurried with it to their little wooden house on the hill. At any moment the great wall above him might have collapsed and killed him, but he was too excited to heed the risk. For three years Schliemann dug into the hill of Hisarlik, finding ruined temples, laying bare castles and towers and city walls. When he published his discoveries, a storm of criticism arose among men of science, They laughed him to scorn, refused to believe him, to accept his evidence. They considered that he was utterly wrong, that his enthusiasm for Homer had led him astray and betrayed him in error. The storm of controversy raged on while Schliemann went to Mycenae, and dug up an even more wonderful treasure than that of Troy, finding the bodies of ancient kings buried in golden masks and with golden armor about them. It was a dazzling discovery of the wealth of the Mycenaean age, and Schliemann proved that his interests were purely scientific by presenting it all to the museum at Athens. Not until the great English statesman, William Ewart Gladstone, arose and championed Schliemann did men of science begin to realize that they were wrong and Schliemann was right. Thus, the poor German grocer boy, who had listened with tears in his eyes to a drunken miller reciting passages from Homer, lived to lay bare the city of his dreams with a spade. Working in direct opposition to the opinions of the science, he dug up the city of Troy in the very place where he knew it must be, and where scientists said it could not possibly have stood. The discovery of Troy was the triumph of Schliemann's faith and genius. End of chapter 13